I did not pick on the Baptists today. <laughs> okay, Ezekiel 11, verse 14. Um, maybe I did a little. On to 25. Hear God's holy word. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I have removed them far away among the nations, and though I have scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. I will give them one heart, put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, that they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. As the Spirit lifted me up and brought me a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea, so the vision that I had seen left me. Then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful for this time, this epoch of dreams and visions, and we're extra thankful that by your Holy Spirit you had these things recorded in your book, and you kept it for your church throughout the ages. And now in this New Testament epoch, Lord, we have the, the full canon, and we bless you for that. I ask for mercy upon my preaching tonight. Put away any silliness, foolishness, fleshliness, uh, any error, Lord, that the words I speak would be the words of truth according to your word. All of us would have what you have promised here in your word, that our heart of stone would be removed, and we would have a heart of flesh, even faith, to see and to hear and to love and to obey Christ. We pray these things in the Redeemer's name. Amen. Well, Last week, we looked at verses 1 through uh, 13, and we've, I think I mentioned this last week, um, that particular section we was continuing with the, the general theme of judgment that we've seen almost from chapter 2 straight up to the section that we just concluded last week. It was um, God promising to bring judgment, 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 mainly judgment upon Judah slash Jerusalem for various expressions of their sin. And the last week, I think we spent our time looking at a, a sub-theme of judgment, which was particularly God's judgment upon apostate leaders. So unbelieving leaders, and, and they're called princes. I believe that they were the 25 um, priests that were bowing down to the sun. We've seen them in a couple of places. So we saw essentially unbelieving priests unbelieving leaders of God's church, as it were, his visible household of faith. There's nothing new under the sun. If we, if I continue to plow through the book and we get to the chapter 34, chapter 34 is a classic denunciation of um, false, useless shepherds that are not shepherding the sheep of Christ. And God says, I'm going to have to come and do it myself. 
very common theme. If you look at, I, I would argue, one of Christ's most severe denunciations of a sinner, it's Matthew chapter 23. Whoa, 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 whoa. Blind Pharisees and so on and so on. And you have Christ clearly say, watch out for the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the leaders of the temple, the leaders of the synagogue, they're blind guides. So that's what we're looking at here. So ch- ch- chapter 11, 1 through 13, was a promise of divine judgment upon unbelief, and particularly on unbe- unbelieving leaders, because they have the power and the position to lead multitudes astray, and, and which is true. That's why God the Holy Spirit says in the book of James, not many people should be quick to be a preacher, pastor, that kind of a thing, because with it comes a stricter judgment because of the capacity to do greater, greater damage. Yes, there is a capacity to do greater good, and you're calling people to come to Christ, and you're building them up through the ministry of the Word, so yes. But conversely, for the faithless and those living in their sin, you're teaching people to live in their sin by both bad preaching and bad example. So last week was a promise of divine judgment for sin. Tonight is much nicer. <laughs> This is a, it's another kind of a promise. And so this is not a promise of judgment, but it's a promise of restoration. It's a promise of mercy. And my method for this passage, and it will be evident to you, with the language of, I'm going to take out the heart of stone, I'm going to give you a new spirit. Clearly, that's a spiritual application of what's going on. So when we see various expressions of God calling his people the exile, the scattered, the captive, that kind of thing. And I'm going to bring you back. Spiritually applied, we're talking about salvation behind. There are two great captivity. There are two captivities, the greater captivity and then the lesser captivity. The greater captivity is Exodus uh, from from uh, Egypt. And then we have from Babylon. Both of those things are seen in scripture as spiritual truths. They physically happen. They really happen. But the way that we understand them in the true sense is that God is liberating his people from slavery, from sin, from bondage, that kind of an idea. So we're going to take what we're looking at here, which actually happened, and we're we're trying to understand it um, spiritually. And so we're looking at God's promise that not just will he return his people to the promised land, but read Hebrews chapter 11, read Hebrews chapter 12, particularly 1 through 3. Well, excuse me, 11, 1 through 40, 40. When the people of God were looking for the promised land, it wasn't a patch of dirt in Palestine. The Old Testament saints knew that they were going home to the celestial city. And so they knew ultimately salvation was to live in the immediate presence of God. That, that's the promise here. So when God says, I'm going to restore you to, to, to the land, it was a real land, but they knew it was typological pointing towards the anti-type and the anti-type being with God or with God in Christ in heaven. So when God says to the people, I'm going to give you a new heart, you're going to be born again. This is a John 3, 1 through 9. You're going to be born again. You're going to love me. You're going to be my children. Galatians 3, we become children of Abraham, children of God by the gift of faith. And so this is a promise that God is going to take sinners. He's going to convert them. He's going to bring them into the promised land ultimately to the promised land above and he will be our God and we will be his children. That's the, that's the covenant promise. It runs as a golden thread throughout the Bible. Genesis 15, 17, Acts chapter 2. 
the promises to you and to your children. The Bible concludes with God coming back, Christ coming back, saying, and, and I, God will be among them. He's going to wipe away every tear. So that's the covenant promise that concludes in the eternal estate. So if we do have the promise that God says, I will judge unbelief, I will judge sin, promise. God here now, finally, we've been looking at it in like vague shadows. But what we're seeing here is a clear expression that God says, I will, I will save. And it's so nice after a couple of weeks, uh, almost a couple of months of denunciation to have a promise of restoration. That's what's going on. Look at verse 13. There's also something else that's happening here. Ezekiel has been called and commissioned, we would say, not by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, but by a vision of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, chapter 1, chapter 2. We've seen him also in a couple of other previous chapters. We, we have a picture of, of a, a figure of a man with a rainbow over his head. The book of Revelation says this is Christ. And so we have this pre-incarnate Christ, but it's Christ on his throne. It's a, it's a, a pre-vision of an exalted Christ. So not Christ in his estate of humiliation, but Christ in his state of exaltation. Christ as king, and he's calling Ezekiel. He commissions him. He puts him into a particular office. He equips him. The Spirit of the Lord says, the Spirit of the Lord says, the Spirit of the Lord lifted me up. He equips him. And Ezekiel speaks back to the Lord in last week's chapter uh, chapter 11, in verse 13, and he asks the Lord a question. Look at verse 13. Now it came about that as I prophesied that Pelatia, the son of Benaniah, died. And this is uh, one of the Levites. Oh, I forget what it was. Oh, Second Chronicles, one of them. I, I had actually hunted this guy down in one of the other books. He's a Levite. And so he's, this guy is a priest. And the son of Benaniah died. Then I'm, I fell on my face and I cried out with a loud voice. And I said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Now, God here in verses 14 through 25 gives the answer. In the answer, when Ezekiel says, will you essentially kill all sinners? Will you bring judgment on all sinners? Now, I want you to stop and think. Even before Christ gives the answer here, which is essentially no, I mean to save some. We have 25 priests bowing towards the sun, worshiping the sun as God. How many of the Levites does God kill? Instantly. One. What did all of them deserve? To go instantly. So Ezekiel does what we would do. If we, This is like if we had seen, what is it? Who were the two people? I forget. In Acts chapter 5, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. It'll come to me later. And God, the Holy Spirit, zaps them dead. We would recoil. We would be terrified if we saw instantaneously the judgment of God for the sin against God to occur instantly. But if we could step back, we could almost answer the question for ourselves. No, no, he doesn't mean to bring immediate judgment on every sinner that sins against him. Those other 25 men were still alive. Now, did God ultimately convert them? We have no idea. But what we're looking at here is Ezekiel asks this kind of question. He's frightened. He's concerned. 
And who is he concerned for? This is a man after God's own heart. Who is he concerned for? Israel. The Israel of God. Will you put an end to the entire remnant of Israel? Will you put an end? Is your purpose to judge all those that sin against you? And from verses 14 through 25, the answer is no. God does not purpose to condemn every sinner that sins against him. The wages of sin, every sin, for every sinner is indeed death. God will bring that condemnation on a certain number of sinners, but it is not God's plan or his purpose to condemn all sinners. And what we're looking at here is God says, I promise I will save some sinners. I promise. What do we call that, beloved? Some sinners receive justice and other sinners receive grace. We call that grace. We call that grace. This is an expression. It's, so when he says, I'll condemn some and I save some, we're both guilty. So it's not as if the, those condemned are any less or any more guilty than those that have received divine restoration. But it's all bound up in um, God. So the answer here is no. I don't mean to condemn all. Does the God of the Bible judge sinners? He clearly does. Does he condemn some sinners? He, he clearly does. Does the God of the Bible forgive, reconcile, receive, and change other sinners? Yes, that's this passage. It's a very nice passage. The Bible, the Bible teaches us and nature teaches us that God is our creator. The Bible also teaches us that God is a, our savior. I believe that the giving of the gospel, this promise should be ubiquitous, that it should go out everywhere. I don't know who the elect of God are, so that means everybody gets it. Come, come, come. If anyone turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and they believe, will God turn them away? Anyone. If anybody turns to Christ, will he turn anyone away? No, he, he won't. And for those that turn to him, he'll raise them up on the last day. And you may say, well, only the elect will do that. I do agree with that. But we don't know who the elect are. So we say to everyone, here is the promise. Turn to me and live. Believe upon me and live. And, and now for those that reject God and Christ as a Savior, uh, they will receive what the previous section, they'll see God as judge. Now, but this is a good news passage. God is saying to them, I'm going to restore all your people. I'm going to bring you back from the land. This is the minor exodus. So you're, you're being brought back from the land of bondage and you're being brought into the promised land to dwell with God. That's a picture of heaven. That's a Hebrews chapter 11. And so this is, and I know I'm kind of looking at it in a, in a macro sense right away, but this whole promise is a promise that God will save. And we've said this before. So he's, and I'll, I'll walk through this particularly in just a bit, but he's going to save them in Babylon, and then he's going to save them from Babylon, and then he's going to save them and bring them into the promised land. But I want you to think of that. He comes to them and saves them in Babylon. He saves by bringing them out of Babylon, and he saves by bringing them into the promised land to dwell with him. That's kind of the, the subdivision within the passage. But if I could deal with that theologically, we've seen this before. When we talk about our salvation, we have been saved from bad things 
and we have been saved for good things. And I'm going to read this from our confession because it's such a, a wonderful summary of what the Bible teaches. So when someone says, well, so the promise is that God will restore, God will save, and we say, yes, we are saved, we're saved people. Saved from something, but saved for something. And I would say for someone, too. So this is the summary of what these folks are receiving. Saved out of Babylon, but saved for the promised land. So negative, positive. This is the way our confession puts it. Chapter 20, article or paragraph 1. The liberty, the freedom which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in, this is going to be the saved from part, and then he's going to get around the saved for part. Their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and the dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, the everlasting damnation. So that's we're, we're free of that. And the way that this passage runs is says, I'm going to meet you in Babylon. I'm going to save you from Babylon. And then he says, I'm going to purge you of all of your corruptions. So all of those bad things which were against us in our sins, because we're going to have this new heart which is given to us by God the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, we have been saved from all of these things. Now, what have we been saved for? We have been saved for in their free access to God. That's the business of living as God's children in the promised land. We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the children of Abraham. John 1, 10 through 13, Galatians towards the end of the chapter. Those with faith in the Lord Jesus, which is a gift. We are the children of God. We are the children of Abraham. In Romans 8, we cry, God, Abba, Daddy, Father. And so saved from the wrath of God, saved for the love, the pleasure, the kindness to serve God with a childlike love because he's our father. That's what it means to to live in the promised land. When we go home to the promised land, the reason it's home is because our father is there, our holy brother is there, and the Holy Spirit will bring us there. So this is a promise of God saying, "I I will save you. I will not condemn you. There will be a portion. Yes, there are the remnant. God is saying to the remnant, I will save. I will judge and I will save. And I do want you to think of the pro- the promise giver. We've we've talked about this. We 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 human beings, we make promises, and at the time we make promises, we may be very 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 sincere, and we may sincerely try the best we can to keep our our promises. But there may be things beyond our control that we are unable to keep our promises to another human being. And I don't mean we're just being charlatans or blasé with a promise. We may desperately want to keep a promise, but we're unable to. But when we think of the promise giver here, God is saying, I will judge, but God is saying, I will restore. I will save. I will do it. I'm going to meet you in Babylon. I'm going to bring you out of Babylon. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to take out your stony heart. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I will be your God. You will be my child. I promise. God cannot lie. Our God cannot lie. We can live and die on that promise. When people say you don't see it, well, 
The word of God has promised. And God is not a man that he should lie. And God wants us to, to look at this. Remember the, those, the, the liberation, the emancipation, spiritually understood. God says, I'm going to free my people from slavery. Did he? did he? Did he free them from Egypt? Did he free them from Babylon? Did he bring them into the promised land? Did all of those people, all of those saints who died in faith, are they in heaven right now in the promised land? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Um, will God make good on his promise? Where he is, there we will be also. Yes. And there's a couple of things. Again, as we're, just as we're considering this theme of God promising to save or to restore sinners, there's a couple of reasons why we have this promise um, to save. Uh, one is, and I know this is going to appear almost silly, God is determined to save a people. When God says, I promise, he means his promise. But the reason people are saved by God in Christ is because God has determined to save them. Um, it's not my purpose to enter into free will discussion for man or free agency for man, those kind of things. Ultimately, we are rescued from our sins because God has determined to rescue us from our sins. If you notice that what our brother uh, led us in in the um, confession of faith, um, and this protects us against hyper-Calvinism, that we are required to believe in order to be saved. I don't know if you caught that. We are required to believe in order to be saved. So someone says, well, I guess are the Westminster Divines Arminians? Are they all Arminians? <laughs> no, they're, they're not. And then that very last section said, and God gives the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to believe. God requires that we believe. God is determined to save us. It's his good pleasure. The way that he saves us is by granting us faith in his son to receive his son. And the second reason why the folks here will be saved is because they're sinners. They, they need saving. And so one, God has determined to save, so they will be saved. The other is they need saving. So we have mentioned many times before, Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call what kind of people? Sinners. All of these people that we're looking at, God says, I promise I'm going to save you. I promise I'm going to give you a new heart. The reason they need a new heart is because they're dead in their sins and trespasses. God says, I'm going to, I'm going to regenerate you. I'm going to make, give you the principle of spiritual life. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to join you to my son. You're a sinner. So when God says, I promise to save, the recipient of that promise to save have, have to be sinners. These people are not any better than the people that receive judgment. And I do want us to think of that because sometimes the longer that we're believers, we can forget this. Maybe if you are radically converted later in life and you remember what you were saved from, particularly if you were big enough to live in some pretty big or ugly sins. All of our sins are pretty big and ugly, but you know what I mean. Initially, sometimes we think, wow, oh, God saved such a wretch like me. But then sometimes the further on down the road we go, we don't really think we're that bad. Not certainly as bad as the next guy. Um, maybe just a little renovation, maybe a little spackle or putty here or there. But we're basically pretty good. We were bowing down to sticks and stones. We were bowing down to the sun. We were crying for 
Molech or whatever the women were crying for. We, we were these people. Well, then why did God have justice on some and mercy on us? Why? Because he determined to have justice on some and mercy on you. That's why. The answer is in, in us. It can't be in us. And so this is pure grace. It's meant, it's meant to melt our hearts. But it is meant to keep us, I would argue, um, supple. When we forget that Jesus is in the saving sinners business and we are really, really sinners. Not just that we were sinners, but we continue to sin against God. When we forget that, we become less serviceable in the kingdom. And when we remember that, we become more serviceable and more grateful. And I would argue properly, rightfully humble. And so God here says to sinners, though you deserve death, I'm going to have mercy on you. And we would like to think the moment that we were plucked from the fire, how would we treat our fellow man, even our fellow man that has sinned against us? How would we treat him the moment we were plucked from the fire and our clothes smelled like fire? But God said, I'm going to save you by pure grace. What would we be like? Hopefully we would be exceedingly gentle, exceedingly kind. But remember the fellow that God said, I'm going to forgive you. And he said, thank you, God. And he went out to his fellow servant who owed him five bucks. And what did he do? You pay me. When we come here and we look at God saying, I'm going to meet you in Babylon. I'm going to take you out of Babylon. And I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And I'm going to clean you up from all that Babylonian-ish stuff and you're going to be mine because I love you and I'm a gracious God. Our response should be, I love you, God, and I'm going to labor to be at peace with all men because I deserve what the other folks got and you gave me grace. So many, many important lessons for us here in this particular passage. But God saves sinners because he's determined and we are sinners, and he is determined to save us. And the description of the people that he saves, we, we see it variously. In Exodus uh, 1.1, 1, 1, uh, he'll refer to the people that he means to save. And again, this is spiritually understood. They, this was physically really happening. But Ezekiel 1.1 1, 1, the, the kind of people that God will save, he says, are these kind of people. Now it came about in the 30th year, in the fifth day of the fourth month. This is Ezekiel 1.1. While I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. God's going to save exiles. God in Christ is going to save people that have been exiled from their uh, homeland and exiled is being, they're being sent to live in a foreign land. In the exile, um, sometimes is, is referred to in various passages in the book of Ezekiel as either an exile or a captive. And those actually are both sides of the, of the same coin. So you're captive to a, in a foreign land by a foreign power, but you're exiled from your homeland. It's the same idea. But the exile is usually for something judicial or punitive. It's kind of like the idea of being banished. So you're banished from your homeland, you're banished from the temple and the presence, and, and part of that punitive banishment 
is that you're going to be held captive against your will in a foreign land. So you're, you're not at home anymore. And you're dwelling among foreigners. And this is, it's either justice to the unbeliever among the household of faith, because only unbelievers receive wrath, or it's corrective judicial, uh, a fatherly correction for the, the believers, but the sinners among the believers who go off to live with the Gentiles. And, and when I say it's lex talionis, it's perfect justice. The people of God went to live with the Gentiles principally for the reason they were living like Gentiles. Remember the gods that they were worshiping? They were Gentilish gods. They said to Jehovah, we don't want to worship Jehovah anymore. We want to worship the sun. We want to worship Molech. We want to worship Tammuz. These were the gods of the Gentiles. We want to live like Gentiles because they're having such a much better time as believers in the Lord with all of this law, gospel business, and holy God and holy people. Oh, who wants to be holy? These Gentiles, boy, they're having a big time. We, we want to live like the Gentiles. And so they did live like the Gentiles. Are there certain freedoms associating with, with being an unbelieving Gentile? Sure, you can sin it up and think you're a good person. And so the Israel of God said, we're just going to live like a Gentile. And what did God say? In the book of Deuteronomy, he says, now listen, if you continue in this, I'm going to take you out of the promised land and I'm going to give you over to the Gentiles. I'll bring you back, but I'm going to take you out of the promised land and put you in a foreign land. And you see, you see the perfect justice and the perfect wisdom of God. If you want to live like a Gentile unbeliever, God's punishment will be, you're going to live with Gentile unbelievers. They will be your scourge. So sometimes the sin that we engage in, God will use that very scourge, and he'll use it to take the taste of it out of our mouths. It's certainly true with drunkenness, if that's the sin, oftentimes God chastises us with a very rod. It's very, very true of sexual uncleanness. People think, what's the big deal? I'm just enjoying a little sexual uncleanness. If you have a sexual uncleanness problem, God oftentimes will scourge you with a sexual slash uncleanness scourge. And we certainly see that kind of a principle uh, here. But he calls them exiles. They're no longer in their homeland They've been taken to their away from their homeland, and they've been held um, captives. And the captives of God is certainly evident. They've been taken off to Chaldea, is another word for Babylon. They've been taken off to uh, Babylonian captivity, and they are under. They're they're either serf-like. Um, certainly, they have greater liberties than even the Israelite, uh, the Egyptian the Egyptian bondage. They have some more liberties, but they're, they're, they're slave-serf-slaves, uh, something like that. But they're, they're in bondage in, um, in um, Babylon. The Bible also calls uh, people that need this salvation, these people calls them strangers and sojourners. And, th- and that's that part of living in exile in Babylon. And the Bible calls us, and, and even in our passage, our passage uses a term, uh, look at verse, uh, what, 16, uh, twice, 17, uh, no, 16 once, 17 twice. I have scattered you among the countries. I will gather you. I have scattered you. It uses that word scattered. In the Greek is um, diaspora, 
I always pronounce it wrong. It's a, it's a compound word, diaspora, spora is seed. It's the scattering of the seed. This is God's people. God's people are exiles. We're not at home. We are captives in Babylon. What does Peter say? She who is in Babylon greets you. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a treatise, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. I haven't hid my eschatological position. I'm decidedly not post-millennial. I don't think America is becoming perfect OPC or the world. I think good and evil go neck and neck, and then Christ comes back. I don't know exactly how it works, but that's my general reading of the scriptures. I don't ever think that the church takes over Babylon and makes Babylon heaven until Christ comes back for the eternal estate. The Bible refers to where we live as Babylon. And so God says to his people in Babylon, I will save you. I will save you out of Babylon. And we are strangers. We are the scattered. That means God takes his seed and he throws us off in the world. And God now makes his promise. Now, I mentioned the various promises that God makes to his people that are indicative of salvation. He says that he'll be merciful to them. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, though I had scattered them among the countries. Look at that next statement. Yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. You see, this is salvation. God does not say to us, you clean yourself up, you get yourself out of the pig pen, you get yourself out of Babylon, and then maybe, just maybe, if you're cleaned up enough, I will will receive you to myself. No. God says, in Babylon, I was with you. I was a sanctuary. Well, didn't, didn't they destroy the sanctuary temple? Yes, they did. Because you were relying upon the edifice, so I took it away. But he didn't take his presence away. God doesn't come to us when we don't need him. God comes to us when we need him. God comes to the sinner dead in their sins and trespasses. I've been critiqued so many times, it's not even funny, by Calvinists that don't understand what Calvinism is. Why do you tell people who are dead in their sins and trespasses to believe? The Bible tells me to. It's God's business. He goes to people that are dead in their sins and trespasses, and what does he do for them? He saves them. That's what he does. He comes to us when we're dead in our sins in Babylon, and he saves us. So God doesn't hold himself aloof. He says, I was with you. I was your sanctuary. Why do we know that God comes to us in our sin? How do we know that? Christ comes to us. Emmanuel, God comes to us. He leaves heaven for earth to come to us while we're in Babylon. And that's a God. That's what we call grace. This is why I'm against all grace plus. Grace plus is just a fancy word for works. God says, I will come to you in bondage and I will be with you. I'm going to save you while you're among your enemies. And what does that testify to us? God comes when the Babylonians have them in captive. They can put them in chains, but can they keep them from their God? Can they keep God from them? No. What what did Paul and Silas do in prison? Worship God. Who was with them in prison? God. So our faith joins us to this transcendent, omnipresent, omnipotent God. God is telling to his people, the bondage doesn't affect my relationship with you. The enemies can't take my affection from you or keep you from me. I save in the midst of my enemies. In the midst of your enemies, God saves. We call that grace. 
Imagine, imagine we were to be taken away in this country, taken away, taken away, out of this country, brought to, um, I don't know, pick the Arab Emirates, where I don't think you're walking around with a Bible anytime soon. Now, we were, we were forced to live in the Arab Emirates. Are we having an OPC on the side? No, we're not. Could the bondage in a Muslim country keep our Christ from us? No. Can he meet us in bondage? Yes. God is testifying to the enemies. Enemies, I'm not, I am omnipotent. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So he says, I'm going to save you while you're in Babylon. And he says he's going to give various mercies to the people in Babylon. And then he says in verse 17, I'm going to save you out of Babylon. Remember we looked at chapter 20, verse 1, the various ways that we understand God's freedom or mercy to us. Saved in Babylon? And what does he promise in verse 17? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. God saves us when we're in the pig pen. God saves us when we're in Babylon. But that God never keeps us there. God takes us out of that place ultimately. We're in the world, but not of the world. Remember we saw this morning, Ecclesia called out, synagogue gathered together. I'm going to save you in Babylon, and then I'm going to bring you out of Babylon. And then ultimately, we know in the book of Revelation, again, as applied to the apostle Peter, we're in Babylon right now. I love America. I really do. I have a soft spot in my heart for my wife's country, India. I watch the Indian news during the week because I just have a soft spot for India, too, because of my dear wife. But the world is not our home. It's Babylon. Someday God has promised that he will save us out of all of this Babylon and living with Babylonians. And it will be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he has promised. Look at Revelation 18.1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. He cried out with a mighty voice saying, this is when Christ comes back. This is why I was going to quote the other day the second Helvetic Confession that this, the post-millennialism, he calls it a Jewish fiction, a Jewish myth, a Jewish dream of having the super-duper earthly kingdom before the eternal estate. Um, uh, Heinrich Bullinger says it's a, it's a, it's a dream. It's, it's, not, it's not scripture. When it occurs is when Christ comes back. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean bird and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And then in verse 17, he says at the end, I'm going to save you out of Babylon. Remember we said, and look at the end, and I will give you the land of Israel. God's going to bring his people out of bondage, but not just out of bondage to wander into the wilderness. He says, I'm going to bring you out of bondage and I'm going to bring you home. There's something about the word of home. I, I read something last week that said, when you look at old pictures and you, if you're nostalgic, they argued, I don't know, it was a person who wrote it. It was probably like a 12-year-old girl. I just liked it. And she said, the, the writer said, it's better for your health. When you read it, you feel better, you're happier. And I have boxes of old photos from my mom when I was up. And I, I, I've been going through those boxes of old photos. I feel better. I have this, wow, that's home. There's home. There's my mom. There's my dad. Oh, look at the home. There's my dog when I was a kid. That's home. Well, if we, we have this kind of temporal 
boy, I'm going home. God here is saying, you're going home to be with me. It's a glorious promise. It's a glorious promise. I love Pensacola. I love my little life. It's all, but we're going home. And God, that's salvation. This is the promise. I'm going to bring you to myself. No more captivity. No more captivity. No more Babylonians. No more Babylonians. None of the stuff of the Babylonians. No. And I'm going to bring you to myself. And they understood what this was a promise. He says, you're going to be, I'll be your God and you'll be my children. In the end of the Bible, as I say, is he's going to, and look at verses 18 and verse 19. And he says, look at what he's going to do. When we come home, what is he going to do? I, when they come there, they will remove all the detestable things and all the abominations from it. The notion is all that Babylonianish stuff that clings to us, God's finally going to remove it from our hearts when we're in his immediate presence. I think it was George Whitfield or one of those fellows I read so much. He longed for heaven because he longed to be free of all sin, especially his own sin. And I don't know, beloved, if you've ever been like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, what is my problem? When will God... When will God deliver? I, I want to love God. I want to love people. And then I'm just prickly as a pear. What is my problem? It just seems the only thing I'm good at is sin. Why can't I love God and love people and love holiness more than five seconds? It's the corruption of the flesh. It's the provocation of the devil. It's the Babylonians that we live. And God says, when I bring you home, I'm going to clean all of that stuff up with you. It's all going to be gone. I can't even, beloved, I can't even imagine. Imagine thinking about God in Christ, loving him and loving another human being without any of those detestable things that provoke us. Imagine that. Beloved, there's one word for that. That's salvation. And that's a promise of our Lord. May, may God be pleased with the preaching of his word.